You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody. I am Andrew Lowen, host of the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, and it's been so long since I've done an introduction that I think I've forgotten how to do it. I am with uh, Sean. Hello. And uh, we have uh, Richard is gone. A robot. Um, yeah, he's a robot. He's transcended into AI. Yes. He's been replaced temporarily by an awesome guest who I'm very excited to interview. His name is Pierre Vandermeesen. He runs Vandermeesen Games, and he created Tiny Folks, which is like an indie RPG strategy video game that is going to be a really awesome case study for marketing. I am so excited. Welcome to the show, Pierre. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super stoked to, to jump in. So I'll tell you how I discovered Tiny Folks. My wife got sick with COVID just before we had our baby. And I suddenly was on full-time babysitting duty. I was like, I've got to entertain my kids somehow because my son had just finished school. He's like on the summer holidays. I'm like looking at games on Steam. This one pops up. I'm like, hey, I like pixel art. I like RPGs. It's three pounds. This this gives us a go. Boom. The kids love it. I love it. Playing it for hours. And it was a great way to occupy us whilst my wife recovered. So yeah, I, I completely am thrilled about this game. I think you've done a stellar job. One thing I really like like about it is that you get that RPG feel, but you don't have to invest 20 plus hours <laughs> into the experience yeah. to get that kind of kick, which I really enjoy because I have, I'm have a big RPG fan, but I just don't have the time anymore to be investing you know, 30 plus hours into Skyrim. I always log back into Skyrim and it's like, where was I? What was I doing? <laughs> I almost feel like lots of people are going to co- copy the sort of like short game format for video games because it feels very much like a tabletop experience where you, you kind of set up the game, you have one you have one playthrough, you finish the game and you put it away, but you can come back to it and you keep on playing it with it and getting a, a different experience each time you approach the game. And it doesn't have this massive time commitment. So I'm really excited to see what you come up with next. And I, I do think you've kind of sh- kind of struck into a gold mine here where I think there's lots of room to expand on the genre. That mainly was a big emphasis right from the start. The, the way that I marketed the game right from the get-go was to frame it as a light dungeon, like darkest dungeon, but way easier way simpler simpler and all kinds of less deep in different experiences and how you have to be tactical to play the game and play it well uh, make it the game more accessible i feel like a lot of players that wanted to get into tactical games or yeah, this kind of that people that wanted to play darkest dungeon but didn't feel like getting beat down by the game as soon as they tried to do a run and have the entire party killed and hours and hours of progress lost uh, gave the same kind of experience but in a in a way way more condensed so that you can experience the thrill of permadeath and uh, exploration and different party combinations and strategy etc but in a two-hour period rather than a 20, 30-hour campaigns, which made it a lot more accessible and chill. The main thing that player came across then was, yeah, I like it, it's chill. I can, they even wanted to remove the difficulty out of the game. Uh, like day two after launch, I received multiple messages from player that told me uh, I don't like the time limit in the game. Uh, at first, you had to complete the game in 45 days. 
just a random uh, go for the game to keep a certain pace and uh, give a goal for like an end goal and some difficulty. And they said, yeah, that stresses me out. Uh, I don't like it. I can't figure how to optimize uh, my party right now because it's my first time playing the game. So I said, oh, okay, I then created uh, an easy mode the following afternoon, I believed, uh, which completely removed the time constraint, but also removed any kind of uh, tactical meta difficulty thing because you could always wait or sleep a day or uh, wait for your things to get better, etc. So you didn't have any things pushing you like in faster than light, you have the rebels that come every turn. Uh, that pushes the boundaries. Uh, you have that in Fortnite where the circle shrinks. This is the, the same, same kind of limits, but some players say, hey, this is a solo game. I just want to play for fun. Can you have this removed for me? In a way, very much like cheat codes uh, we had in all the games where you, you say, okay, I just want to play G GTA and have fun. I turn on good mode, uh, good mode and uh, give, my give myself a bunch of money and a flying tank. <laughs> so in board games, I, I deal a lot in board games, and I find that the element of take that or even a competitive game, it has very different, I guess, very different context if you're playing a take that cutthroat game that is very swingy, that ends in 15 to 20 minutes mm. versus a very cutthroat swingy game that ends in two hours where yeah. people will say, you know, maybe one person knows that they've lost. There's no way they can come back. So they decide to, you know, suicide into the, the player with the highest or, you know, that has the best chance mm. of winning. Um, that type of thing just always leaves people, unless you love those types of games, always leaves people just feeling like, man, I just wish I had two hours of my life back, you know? And yeah, exactly. It's, it, it can be much the same with roguelike. Uh, you know, permadeath games. I, I still remember every time I've ever played Diablo 2 Hardcore, like back in the day, Diablo 2 Hardcore, I'd have a paladin that'd be almost level 80 and he would die just on a standard run where I'm getting loot and XP and that kind of thing. No friends in the game to help me. He mm -hmm. would die. I would lose everything. And it was just, I would quit Diablo for like a month before I'd finally get the courage to play again. You know, it was... It was rough, but that's when I had more time. And so now as a 37-year-old adult, it's like there's you no can't. way I'd play hardcore. Yeah. In a way, if, the, if, if I had to really pinpoint two or, three or, yeah, two or three pillars for the game, and you, you've said the one uh, previously, it's, it's only three, three or four bucks, which is a massive, massive, massive um, uh, pre press incitation and value because the gameplay i put into the game when i was developing the game other game uh, developers and indie developers also working on their games told me it's way too cheap uh, you you can't make any money out of this uh, this because they knew the scale of the game because they had seen all the different maps and bosses etc and said this is too much content and work uh, put into a four bucks game, but I really bet on the way that I wanted people to come across the game and say, "Okay, it's only four bucks. I can afford it, even if it's even if it's bad. It's not a really big loss economics wise." And then 
anything that comes across as good has much more value. And then, and so you have a, a much better experience. You have much better reviews, which drives more engagements, which drive more views on the game and higher up uh, in the algorithm you go, you get more wish lists, etc. So the price point was intentionally, intentionally very low, plus a discount at launch just to drive interest in the game. And when people saw that you could get multiple runs and multiple different playthrough of two hours, some people played like 10, 20. I have some player playing 100 hours of the game now, uh, just trying out all, all kinds of metas and combinations. If I had marketed, marketed it as a 10 bug game, obviously the value was fairer and more according to the current market, I think. Uh, but obviously I wanted to drive prices down because I am a solo developer. So I did everything myself during a very short period of time. This is like my first serious commercial project. So in a way I was just throwing out uh, this old prototype I had, working on it for about a year and then releasing it uh, out of um like my payout uh, when i quit my job etc and all the money i had lying around and then so it basically costed me nothing to make the game so i could release it at any price without any risks so as a first game uh if i want to get my name out there uh, making it making it cheaper so just so i can make the ratio price value higher was just the best call for me in the end. It's very clever. It's very, uh, Kickstarter and Steam work very similar, the algorithm. And this is why you see on Kickstarter, people have almost like artificially low fund goals. The goal is to fund quickly and fund fast and get lots of explosion on their, their project so that the algorithm will then push it out. And that's exactly what you did with, by having that lower price point, because as you said, it completely cuts off that objection. And it's better than free to play because I think with free to play, you kind of have, oh, there's going to be microtransactions in here somewhere. And so it removes that objection as well. And what it really did is that it creates a desire for DLC because it's so short and you want more content. It's like, oh, well, I, I'd, I'd happily pay for another, another part of the map where there's like a different whatever and a different story. I think people would easily throw 10 bucks at that. So you've created a entry point into other expansions of, of the game. And even listening to the fans of the project, giving, giving feedback, saying they wanted an easier mode. I think that has an advantage because it allows people to experiment. I actually played it because I was playing it with kids. So I was like, I'm playing this on easy mode. And it gave us, it gave us as a family an experience to sort of play and test and see what this is about. But then when we played it the second time, we did hard, hardcore mode and failed miserably, but at least we tried. And um, it, was, it was fun because at that point I, I knew that, oh, okay, there's a bit of strategy here. I can build this first and build that. And, you know, th this combination creates this class and then gives me these abilities. And so I was able to go into the hard mode with that knowledge. And then when fans see the, you listening to them and implementing those changes, it just makes them more pumped about the project. And we see this with, with crowdfunding as well, with uh, uh, pre you know in development because you can't change a game after it's been printed uh, uh, physically but you you can do it beforehand with playtesting which is similar to what, what you're doing with patching and, and things and your strategy has been intentional and it's very intelligent but it's also very similar similar to crowdfunding have you ever thought about crowdfunding um, yeah. at all a, a project i didn't thought about crowdfunding 
when I started my game dev journey, uh, the main goal was more to uh, make free games during jams and different experiments just to find a very good prototype. I could then expand and hopefully make a game out of it, which became Tiny Folks. So now that the game has been doing pretty well, uh, I have enough to fund the development of another game since I'm still working solo. So the costs of the entire journey are pretty easy to understand and uh, foresee in the future. But uh, one way I see crowdfunding as a very big advantage, and, and I see game jams and, and jam games, etc., as the same, uh, the same benefit. It has the same benefits as uh, crowdfunding in you can gouge for public interest. Like it's good to have your idea and have this general cool idea of a game, but then having to make a prototype or enough of a one page to present it to someone and then gouge interest and do that really frequently when you don't have a big project that you know have better chances to succeed or at least not as bad as all the other projects. I, I see more as a petri dish, like um, jam games and crowdfunding and um, all these kinds of projects where, okay, if the jam games got really good reviews and got picked up even after the, the game jam, uh, got reviewed by some other Twitch streamer or a YouTuber, etc., and I don't know for crowdfunding th since I didn't do any crowdfunding myself, but I feel it's the same. You you got people and reviewers talking about the different crowdfunding and promising ones, etc., or maybe playing uh, demos of different uh, board games that are released, or trying papercraft versions, or reading the rules, discussing about different law aspects. Uh, I don't know, like, talking about your game in general. It's the perfect case to see what sticks throwing different ideas at the community and see what sticks and then um, figure out okay this is a really promising project uh, this didn't gotten much interest even if i thought it was a really cool idea etc and even letting go of the idea a bit just so you can Take a step back and see, okay, was it even feasible in the first place? You you really have to rationalize and try making something out of your idea as fast as possible and as cleanly and neatly and as minimalistic as a project as a product, just just to see if the trunk of your project will stand in the one year, two year, three years uh, of next time developing or crafting or making your game. Yeah, that's the tough part. It's it's uh, such a, a commitment to actually bring a project to fruition that, you know, it just makes so much sense what you'd said. In essence, you're gaining a bearing on if this investment of, of time is going to be worthwhile. And I find in my own game design journey, I, I released a game called, or I'm in the process of releasing a game called Deliverance. I've had many other ideas come up in the meantime, things that have made me excited, things that I wanted to switch and, you know, just put deliverance on the shelf for a little bit and work on this other thing. But it's the, it's the game that everybody wanted. It's the game that everybody had was excited for. And, you know, I, I really had to shelve all of the other ideas and just say, this yeah. is the one that I'm going to make a reality. And I think that a lot of people run into trouble where they, 
get mm-hmm. every project 20% completed. Do you have that, that uh, tendency to want to work on something, flesh out an idea? I think I was like this when I was doing mostly, um, when I started, I was doing development on Unity for VR training for work safety, etc. using like VR um, bulldozers or cranes, etc. So that kind of stuff. So basic, serious game, Unity development. And at the time I was prototyping, trying the tools, etc. And the what really started the seriousness of my personal projects. So the games I was I was I was making solo was gems. Ha- having that constraint of you have one week or two days or 48 hours, 72 hours or one month to make a game, ship it and have people play it. This is the kind of focus because when you're doing a jam, you have you start with a 48-hour game jam uh, or you could say different writing events. Uh, you, you can transpose this out of game development if you want. Like you can have novel writing con- contests or events, for example, or all kinds of different ideas, art uh, collaborations or art challenges. But having that constraint where you know you have this project and starting with a very short constraint in time, starting with a very simple piece in 48 hours, a simple game in 48 hours or one week, etc. When you know how to use the tools, uh, rather than just starting a game jam when you don't know any game development, which can be completely overwhelming to do something in 48 hours when you don't know how to make basically anything with the tools you have uh, at your disposal. When you have spent some time working consistently, developing your skills on the different tools, then in 48 hours, it's more of a, okay, how can I focus and distill the different ideas and how can I finish a game? And that's the most, the most important part is finishing something, even if it's free, even if it's small, even if you release it, but, but you have to finish. You, and once you finish once and you get good reviews and good feedback on the thing you you just made, it was, yeah, the instant drive to make more, continue, and have that focus kind of mentality where you don't think about other projects for 48 hours. And then you start not doing any more project for a week and then a month. And then at one point you say, okay, now is the big time I want to focus on a game for six months. And I do agree, it's hard. You have all the ideas and uh, small project that you want to procrastinate basically or just see if it even works but then i tend to run into a more of a sunken cost fallacy where okay can i really just drop what i'm what i've been communicating and developing and uh, crafting for the past three four five six seven months right now just to try out this new idea no now that I have a project that I'm confident into, uh, like you, you have to be confident in your project to minimize the chances of dropping it. And the best way to be confident in your projects is to have tested it previously with crowdfunding or prototyping or community uh, gouging, like, like we said uh, before. You're you're talking about building a community of people that can give you feedback and that are kind of invested in the success of your 
project because they care about it. Number one, where do you find the most effective method of actually talking to your people? You know, your people, where do you talk to them? And what do they care about? Like, what are the sorts of things that get them really excited? And The game had you know, a life cycle, which was pretty bizarre. The, the game has been out for three months now, but it started a year ago. Like the very first, first pixels were put a year ago, but I started really the basics of my project and most of my Twitch, uh, Twitter following was coming from old jam games I had. Uh, so uh, people following me for, from other game jabs like GMTK or Ludum Dare, etc. So this was my very, very small international following, uh, which I crafted for two years, basically, during the pandemic, really. Uh, with releasing tons and tons of uh, jam games. So they were invested in the art I was showing on Twitter. So that's really what drove me to continue working and improving in pixel art because I hadn't done any pixel art before starting working on tiny folks. So I, the very first pixel I made and then uploaded them on Twitter. And then I did the very first class spreadsheet uh, so a very nerdy and one frame, you get it all and you have all kinds of details kind of posts, uh, which blew up. Like I, I only had 10 followers on Twitter at the time and the post got um, 2,000 likes. So the algorithm, oh, yeah, spreadsheets for nerds with pixel art. <laughs> have fun, guys. Um, uh, and that really kept me continuing working on the Twitter when I was alone. And then I moved houses and started working on Twitch regularly for a French audience, because obviously I'm French and working on the game, trying to, to speak English uh, at the meantime, when you're trying to debug some code, etc. It's just not feasible. So during development, most of the active community I was uh, speaking with and getting feedback from was my Twitch audience. When I was developing the game, there are small game dev niches and pixel art niches uh, in the French uh, French community. So. Yeah, just hanging, hanging around on other people's streams as well, just to know the community and be a friendly guy and uh, and uh, get some tips also from other game devs and other pixel artists. Uh, get involved in their community so that they know you and see your works, etc. And if you are a regular Twitch streamer with a, uh, like a, some good, good chill stream, then people started hanging out and getting interested in the game I was making. And then having spent a lot of time with the different communities and streamers in this French community on Twitch, that led me to the first beta tests I did with these streamers, which became friends in, in the meantime, so that I could give beta keys to my friends and see them on Twitch, which uh, like it's way way easier than sending them copies and requesting for feedbacks on video, etc. They already have their Twitch account. Uh, I just send them the game and I can watch it uh, while I'm cutting carrots for my tomato soup, or I don't know. So it's a really chill and a great um, yeah, feedback and playtesting experience. So contacting small small streamers and small niche to give them beta, beta keys and other game devs as well. The game dev community also runs uh, Feedback Fridays where you can get your game uh, showcased and uh, 
playtested by certain Twitch streamers, which can be all right. I don't know a lot of people making that for board games, uh, but just because the Twitch interface and setup is more developed with uh, computer games than uh, board game setups. Yeah, we uh, interviewed Alex Radcliffe of Board Game Co, and he's he started doing that. But what you're explaining sounds pretty much identical to what we do when we market board games on Kickstarter, is that we use reviewers and YouTubers who, who create content and then talk about the game. And I suppose even a Kickstarter launch date and the launch date of a product on Steam is very similar. You're kind of building up hype mm. to the launch date, and then suddenly everyone can purchase, and then that kind of pushes out the product on, on an algorithm. So there's lots of overlap. So it's very interesting just to see the same concepts that we've been talking about on this podcast and how you've used them. They also apply to the video game space on Steam. It's just very interesting that the kind of underlying philosophy of marketing transitions between different types of games very easily. I feel like all marketing can be boiled down is, so the medium of marketing often changes. The obviously technology will change and and things like that, but I think that people kind of remain the same. The thing that the things that people want are community. They want people to care about them. They want to buy things uniquely crafted to their interests. They want people to you know when they're buying something, they're kind of buying into mm. a a club almost where they get to kind of celebrate a thing together. You know, so that I think that a lot of these things. I personally look at in the 1900s, you would go to the market and the store owner would know your name, know how many children you had, know how many gallons of milk you needed. And he would have your order already in bags because you always show up on the fifth of every month and, or on, on Monday, every day of the week. And that's just how it works. You know, maybe the town had 200 people in it and the store owner knew every single one of them, right? It's not like, you know, if they got upset at that store owner that they could just go to another store, which was 20 miles away. They'd probably be eaten by wolves first, right? <laughs> um, Sounds like a good game. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oregon Trail, like 1900s edition. I don't know. The same concepts apply to marketing today. And when I, as just as a marketer that has now gone through several different I don't want to say fads, but rises and falls of marketing trends, you know, uh, since we've started our business, I've, I want to say 2010, um, mm. you know, really the, I'm mean, Twitch TV didn't exist yet. It was Justin.tv that was where the guy was streaming UFC events and getting lawsuits and things like that. And to see kind of the rise of various marketing trends. I've always kept this analogy of the shopkeeper in the 1900s, you know, early 19th century as a model for marketing because it keeps what I, I use this term sometimes, it keeps the main thing, the main thing. And what the main thing is, is people want to be valued. They're going to exchange their money for a product, but they, they want also to uh, be appreciated for that. And to and in exchange for your not only you know of course the transaction they pay the money and get the item so I pay four or three ninety nine I get tiny folks I'll do it if I feel like it or if I want to or or you know I mean you're just a commodity to me but when you add this extra almost it's almost like a relationship or in a probably you know modern terms now a community that you can you know play tiny folks 
you can say, dude, I just got smashed. I suck at this game. Help. And then there's a whole community of people, including the developer, that will say, awesome. I'm glad that you're in. And let's talk about, like, this is what you should do first. And here's a better way to start next time. Let me know how that worked for you. And all of a sudden, that one person that originally just kind of looked at it as a commodity thing, like Sean, you were talking about, oh, we just need something to do as a family. And this seems like a good fit. I'll just buy it because it serves my interests at the moment that, you know, there's a lot of transactions happening for that purpose. But then in addition to that, you know, if you need it, I mean, you're an elitist gamer, so you don't need really much help at all. You're like, well, you know, Uh, but the idea behind being able to kind of bring people in and foster a relationship with people over this thing that we can all kind of celebrate together as fans, even the developer of the game is also a fan of the game. I think that that really goes quite a long way in marketing. And the people that you bring in will oftentimes support you as the developer, regardless of the next project you make, if it's not pixel art and if it's like a triple A MMO, like they're they're like, well, Mm. Pierre's making it, so I want to support it. Getting that relationship between, okay, Pierre's making it. And that's really something I decided really early when I was making my very first jam games. In fact, it was Townsfolks, which became then Tiny Folks. So it, the very first jam games I did really seriously became the the game we are talking about today. And I just signed it, um, made by Pierre van der Meizen. And uh, when I needed to create uh, a name for my company, I had just wrote under all the titles of my game, always made by uh, Pierre van der Meizen. So... Uh, naming myself like uh, the green worm, green worm corp or uh, a super games company or something like like that no it's a handcrafted solo made game by a single guy so you know the guy you know what he had made for the past uh, three four years and when i look back at i'm not that old like i'm 26 so when i was looking at the internet when i was 12 13 i saw french artists which were comic comic book artists or early flash interactive weirdness on the internet it, and it was just one guy with uh, his blog blog um, uh, web page etc with all kinds of different interactive things and games and stuff all made by this person and you know okay i look back three months later oh there's a, another game another cool thing i can play and you keep Going back, uh, even today, like seven, ten years later, oh, has this uh, comic book artist done anything similar today? Because you know the name, it hasn't changed. I won't change my name for another uh, <laughs> hundred years, maybe. So that's really branding. Uh, in the end, it's branding. So you know the guy, you know the kind of games I like to make. And if that's the kind of game you like, then you can subscribe mentally to this person and form a relationship. As you said, it's like uh, knowing a good uh, cheese maker or a good brewer or uh, just someone who had really good peaches. Uh, It's the same kind of ancient craft, uh, as you'd say. Yeah, it's like champagne. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between the game industry and the game craftsmanship, uh, just so that you can 
attribute uh, yeah. an IKEA spoon to a machine somewhere that made the game or an handcrafted spoon from your local woodworker. I recently, for example, just to give some free publicity so to a game I loved, uh, Delve uh, from Blackwell Games, which is a tiny tabletop game which gives uh it's a map drawing game where you draw cards and it's all it do all kinds of stuff and when you get to that website you see that it's handcrafted and all the products are in the same identity but don't seem gigantic enough to to be industrialized uh like looking at dwarf fortress now you can't imagine how something could have been made by only that tiny of a team for example but when you are starting darkest dungeon it can be a sole project and it can be a craftsmanship but you can keep working on the same spoon for 10 years and have the best handcrafted spoon with really golden details etc uh, you're still a craftsman but uh, then getting into bigger waters when you need to bring consultants on board and artists and you have greater ambitions that any individual could have for um, uh, any kind of project. Um, then you become industry. So when do you decide to cross the border between, okay, I just want to live like a craftsman or I want to create my own company and industry. And the decisions you will make will affect your branding, obviously. So how people are going to respond to your different projects. Obviously, if I tomorrow I uh, show a new trailer for a game I'm making and it's a 3D MMO uh, RPG and my logo is in big in 3D, people are going to freak out like, uh, <laughs> what, what's happening? Could be a good, a great publicity stunt, but uh, <laughs> or not on the title. Yeah. Which is really interesting because you ha you have a company like Naughty Dog, right? Who sort of carved their niche on PlayStation, creating sort of very cartoony stretch and pull animation style platformer games. Is that Earthworm Jim? Yeah. Naughty Dog? No, no, it's Crash Bandicoot. So Crash Bandicoot. Okay, yep. And then on the PlayStation 2, you have the, the Jack series, the Jack games. But then when they went to the PlayStation 3, they sort of mm. changed their, I suppose, style. They went they went for like hyper cinematic realistic. And because they were great game developers, they actually were able to do that quite well. But from for, for myself growing up with those games, I didn't transition because mm. I was like, no, I want I want stretch and pull animation. This is the kind of games I want. So I could recognize those games were good games, but I I didn't have the same experiences with the same experience, I, and I don't have the same relationship with their newer games than I did with their older games because I I grown to like that style. They changed their style, and I think like myself, I'm sure many others didn't transition with them as they continued. I also got into more PC games as I got older, so I kind of ditched the consoles, but that, that didn't help. <laughs> PC Master Race. That, that's interesting because when, when I, the day I finished uh, Tiny Folks and released it, the the next day I, I, I was saying, okay, I'm doing the next project. Ju just to show off, I was on Twitch, uh, okay, I'm working on the next thing. And at first I was really into making a first person horror game uh, really minimalistic uh, because it was a craze at the time and I had the small prototype I really liked. So like, I worked a day or two on it, uh, on this prototype. And then I see the sales 
uh, of tiny folks that started to rack up and rack up and the game started getting more and more visibility as uh, different uh, streamers and youtubers played played the game and released video about it i said oh i can't i can't do fps or game uh, now because people are going to say okay it's pierre van der Mazen, it's great pixel art and uh, and uh, super tuny uh, tunes and uh, hype music etc and then i'm releasing like a super somber weird cryptic horror game switching niche is a really risky business if you plan to keep like it's you're going to your spooncraft uh worksman and uh, he only makes tables now and you're okay how, how am i gonna eat my soup uh sorry so you you have to you obviously have to be careful once someone puts yeah, a tag true. on you and you have to be careful because only certain players and customers will recognize your game as your game. Obviously, the smaller you are, the fewer persons that buy your game mm -hmm. know you or would buy your game or follow news, etc. about you. Obviously, this I, I think this has a weird curve where the smaller you are, if you're really small, a lot of people a greater proportions of your actual following and customers will follow your work very actively. But then when you progress to a thousand followers, uh, 10,000 followers, uh, 20,000 followers, a very small proportions are really active and the real bulk uh, of your customers are people who saw your game, who like the idea, but who don't care of you as a developer or an individual, they only care about the product. So obviously you can keep having people come back for these kind of person-to-person -person relationships or person-to-company relationships. Um, but for indie games with, uh, unless you had a really successful full title, which puts you uh, on top of uh, the collective um, imaginations like uh, Naughty Dog with uh, Crash Bandicoot or Online Miami or Faster Than Light or all those very very big indie successes you can only expect people to care about your game to a certain point or, or at least care about your next game to a certain point so if you're really small getting yourself into a niche very fast isn't really the good option I think but once you have established a uh, big following, then getting outside uh, outside of your specific identification genre, things can get difficult to bring other players on board. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I there are a couple of companies that I think about that have done either a great job or a poor job in bringing their fans along for a journey. You mentioned that some people are just going to buy the product and that's it. Um, and they're not really going to pursue any further. Other people will become your your biggest fans and the active community members. I have that, you know, with Deliverance, where I have people that have played, you know, hundreds of games. They actively talk about different builds for characters and other things like that. And you know, my game's not even released yet. But um, I have others that wake up every six months and are like, "Is this done yet?" No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and others that have just bought the game and never said a thing, right? You know, that I just have never heard from. That's speaking like inside the project life cycle. Uh, so people that have played the game and like the game and people that uh, look uh, at the game even, ever so often. But 
even greater than that, you have people that care about your company or uh, the, even if your project will, yeah, they believe in the kind of work they you do more than the product you are making right there, right now. And they are obviously your biggest, 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 biggest fan. It's like being fan of an album of a certain music group or being fan of the group or a certain title of a group or being a fan of the Beatles yep. or just a dude. Yeah. Like I really loved the Weird Al running with scissors album, but I never went to Weird Al concert, but I know, I don't think I've actually ever owned a Dragon Force album, but I've been to like every Dragon Force concert <laughs> and every chance I get to stream um, anything Dragon Force or Lindsey Sterling or whatever. I'm all about that. Totally get what you're saying. Pierre, when it comes to marketing tiny folks on Steam, Currently, what has been the greatest challenge to, to in doing that? Or maybe phrasing that in a slightly different way, if you were to launch a second game, what would you do differently? I, I really did a lot of different mistakes, definitely, uh, when launch, launching Tiny Forks. The first one was not having a Discord server set up. Uh, so my community didn't exist because of the game, but only existed because of my Twitch live streams. So having in international interest uh, of the game was inexistent. And even after launch, I just didn't bother setting up uh, Discord. So we have one now, but now that most players have played the game and uh, passed to greener pastures, uh, there are only the really hardcore fans or new players that are hoping in. So that definitely was a mistake. The next thing is just not getting localization rights. And, and in a way, it, it depended because uh, the translation for Spanish, German, and Italian was utter crap. And, and the English version had quite a lot of mistakes uh, in it. So just because like I was doing it by myself with uh, no money for hiring translators, etc. So it's my broken English and a pretty spell, spell, spell checked uh, French version. <laughs> and, um, and people were really bummed down about it because uh, they, the game seemed perfectly in their niche and they saw that the game was available in Spanish because the translation was done in a half-assed way basically and then they got on the game and, and were really frustrated but in a way that frustration also pushed some player to say hey the Spanish translation isn't that bad there are some ways to improve it and uh, to offer some help and mainly I think because I was alone as well uh, they felt more comfortable giving a hand to a single person than to a, a company so that really helped so yeah getting translations and localization rights is or at least not claiming that you have the kind of uh, languages like it's better to release with only a few languages than uh, 20 broken ones <laughs> so that that's definitely something I didn't yeah. do right. I, I guess not having um, a Steam page ready or finished early enough. I definitely just because the project was occurring on such short of a time frame. Like I was saying, okay, I must game. I must do a game in six months. So by the fourth month, I must have a 
Steam page ready with uh, the company created, etc. So I have very little time to do proper setups plus do the old game <laughs> on the side. Even even if you th think you won't succeed, releasing a game one month early can make a difference between having a good success and having a very good success. And like when you have sunk six or seven months of development uh, into a game and then you release it and then you have a ton of player feedback, which are like you have hundred times more eyes that you have ever had. If you are lucky, if your game actually gets on in front of all those eyes and uh, what they see are just small bugs you could have fixed. Even if the game is really good, Polish mistakes can get people out of the game, even feeling great about the game, but not wanting to see more of the game as it goes forward, just because they say, okay, then they'll fix a bunch of the bugs. Uh, and I guess that's it for a single developer. So getting a lot of play tests. Yes. Amen to that. Because so uh, what I find is with a tabletop game, you have the physical prototype that you can't just. It's even you know, harder. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, if I, if I'm playing with folks, so I actually use tabletop simulator to do rapid prototyping and make quick changes and ask feedback and that sort of thing. The thing that I hate more than anything is when I have a deadline for a convention, let's say, and I need to take the, take deliverance or whatever game to a convention for people to play test and whatnot. You know, let's, let's just say I were to bring an old version. An old version with something that's fixed, you know, but it's not reflected in the cards, let's say. It drives me nuts to get the feedback from every single playtesting group. Oh, you should really change this one thing. If you only change the one thing, it would be so much better. And then it's like, yeah, but it is changed. However, it wasn't yeah. reflected in the copy that you gave. So you gave me outdated feedback, which means that, you know, the other problems that may be in, you may have noticed without that bug i don't know about and i feel you know i just feel like it was such a waste for me to not have the most updated version possible or to fix the most obvious bug so that they could then review without that problem you know it's uh it, it really does require rapid attention <laughs> to those problems doesn't it it's iteration is obviously Super, super important, and mostly in game design, most of other all other art form. I think just because you have so much interaction, so many different interaction baked into your system that you can't possibly QA all of them. It's just impossible. You can look at a painting and inspect it, and even if you it's inspected really thoroughly, uh, you can get that done in ten hours, uh, like finite. But getting into a game and just trying out all the different possibilities and the different mindset that people have is just impossible. So having iteration, having uh, up-to-date versions and really the best you can show at that time, having build readies, builds ready or quick hotfix ready, uh, um, the latest rule book uh, for your board game. And most importantly, you can, once your project launch, if it has any of these imperfections, uh, then you're done. Uh, you, you're not done, done, but it really undermines the uh, quality of your game, even if you fix them post-launch. 
like and and this happens for all kinds of game if you know that uh cyberpunk uh 2077 get out at that time and when it gets out everybody is hyped about it and it's broken even if it's fixed two days later or three or four weeks later because it's a ton of bugs then you should have released the game four weeks later so and that was really a mistake i did where okay I had this arbitrary deadline for the game where I said, okay, I already sunk seven months for the game. I need to ship it now or else I'll never ship it. What I should have done is, okay, at that point, you do an open beta. So I don't know how you could do it for board games, but for virtual games, it's pretty easy. You can then give access to a really small portion of the community. Uh, or reviewers, team curators, small YouTubers, really get your hand on as much and as many people as you can uh, by any means, and then release an open beta and get that kind of feedback and uh, broad views of the game at that point so that you can polish the, all the bumps and little bugs and uh, diffi weird difficulty curves, etc., before your real launch. So you should launch two times, basically. Yeah, you know, um, the way that for me this works in tabletop games is that uh, so you build your game, you get it ready for Kickstarter, you make it look as interesting and fun as you possibly can on Kickstarter. And then after the Kickstarter is completed and the game is funded, you um, fine tune, hopefully you've done a bunch of playtesting up to that point. So the game looks polished and, and is, is good. But um, reviewers in the tabletop space and influencers will take um, the nicest looking parts of the game and then give their audiences an experience of the game, even though the campaign doesn't exist yet and the only half the cards are, you know, have art on them. They'll use the half of the cards that have art on them, right? And make it look like it's a full game. Then really it's up to you to develop playtesting groups in one way or another, uh, you know, you can take your game to the local games uh, game store for game night. You um, do, you can do what I did. We, we created a Discord server with Tabletop Simulator so that people could play it digitally with each other. I think that's such an important tool in today's day and age is to, you know, in essence, you're turning your board game into a video game adaptation of, of the board game so that you can get playtesting done. And then that's where you really fine tune the details. But yeah, when the game is released in tabletop, it's much the same. You know, I actually remember, you know, as you were talking, I remember playing Elder Scrolls online. It was super fun. I loved the idea of playing Elder Scrolls, but, you know, online, I love MMOs and, and that kind of thing. And I remember there was like right around level between 10 and 15, there was this escort quest that would break and you would have the NPC, the NPC would uh, have you know the quest and then one person out of the 50 that were standing there would get it and that person would do the, the quest and then two hours later mm. the guy would pop back up and so you have tons of people waiting around people getting upset and frustrated and that sort of thing and what should happen is the that person should you know either let everybody in the area go on the quest it should let you know the one group go on the quest and then the next one spawns and, you know, maybe a different instance or something, but it caused, I'm going to say it caused like 20% of the audience for Elder Scrolls Online to just disappear. That's and bad. That's massive. I mean, yeah. that has huge implications down the road 
right? All those 20% could have been advocates and evangelists for your game. And now they're, they're not, you lost that opportunity. And uh, there, there's this balance that has to be struck between I'm going to release it now because it needs to be released. Now I'm running out of money. I'm running out of time. It needs to do the thing. If it's going to, it needs to do it now. Uh, that's kind of what happened to me with deliverance. It's like, you know, I just, I could keep spending money on this, but it really needs to justify mm. its investment. And I am kind of running out of room to, to keep running. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where we made our decision there, but, but yeah, it's such a, I think what you, the point that you brought up about the arbitrary deadline versus, you know, taking an objective look and saying, you know, I, well, the, the other problem you run into is the game is never done. It's only yeah. released. It's just never finished. Right. Especially if you're George Lucas. Yeah. For three or four months uh, when I was making Tiny Folks and when I started uh, sending uh, the first beta keys to friends to get some feedbacks, etc., they were overwhelmingly against the fact that statuses, so burn, poison, and uh, stun, etc., couldn't stack. So if you have if you had burn uh, a boss and then you apply poison to it, the burn would disappear. And when I was envisioning envisioning it during the entire development process, and and I was developing a live on Twitch, so I had constitu continually had to explain to people why I wanted the status system to be like that. Because even before playing the game, people are, were telling me, "Okay, that's kind of weird," but uh, if you you're the dev, you do what you do, okay, uh, you might be right. And I had good arguments. I say, okay, it's more tactical. Uh, you really need to think about how you uh, put your folks in what order, etc. Uh, but then looking at player actually playing and using that system, you see more frustration than, than fun. So it's not a good outcome. So that really means that your strategy and your idea for this feature isn't great and it's hard to 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 um, get a sense of okay is this frustration uh, is it legitimate frustration what caused the frustration and you really have to pay attention and know your game really well to see okay uh, he, he might have took this path or had this bug that led to this kind of frustration etc to really pinpoint and do acupuncture uh, then to really spot where you need to put small tweaks and fixes to fix as broad of a picture as you can with minimal efforts. That's a way to just don't have the house of cards fall down when you are making changes with a live game. You know, is there any any other thought that you would have for aspiring game designers before before we wrap? And then I certainly want people to know where to find you. So also, you know, how can people find you and find your games? Yeah, sure. Um, so a small tip to all aspiring indies uh, is to start small, finish projects and keep it simple. It's by doing incremental steps that we learn anything as humans. So not trying to eat more than you can chew. And then it's all a matter of keeping your head cold and uh, yeah, grinding uh, until you get enough experience and luck to hopefully make, make something that make people happy. So you can see me on itch.io uh, for all my games. Most are free. 
And uh, obviously, you can try out Tiny Folks on Steam, on Steam right now. Uh, it's only four bucks, and people like it. So yeah, have a go. You have a lot of uh, really positive reviews on Steam. I mean, it's very yeah. positive. It uh, looks awesome. Super Once fun. again, I really do think the price has a lot of do, to do with it uh, again. What we're going to do is we're going to have Richard, who is missing from our podcast, but I'm going to call him from the ether and he's going to send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.